You saw a failed medical experiment being covered up on a global scale. Dr. Pierre Corey is a pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist and co-founder of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, FLCCC. Once you read a study and you see that they have numerous conflicts of interest with the actual molecule or compound or medicine that's being studied, you cannot trust that paper. He's the author of the upcoming book, War on Ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the COVID pandemic. Myself and the FLCCC has launched ourselves into the middle of a decades-long war on repurposed drugs. This is not about ivermectin. Ultimately, Jan, it was a war of information. I think all of the destruction was about information and how it was controlled. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Pierre Corey, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure as well to be back. I want to start with something perhaps unexpected, something I didn't realize until yesterday someone mentioned it to me, and that was that you were one of the expert medical witnesses at the George Floyd trial. So tell me about this. Yeah. So in the middle of my COVID journey, it was, uh, I'd just done a month in New York City running an ICU for five weeks, and uh, I was exhausted. I was an emergency volunteer there, and I went back home to Wisconsin, and one day on a Saturday, I got a call from the agency that usually asks for me to be an expert witness on various mal medical malpractice cases. And it's a little odd because they called me on the phone. It was a Saturday and I didn't even notice the number. I don't even answer those calls anymore, but I, I answered the phone and she started to tell me that they were, they were looking for an expert for a case. And she said, however, she said three things about the case. She said that they were looking for someone who could maintain confidentiality to the highest degree. And I was like, this is interesting. And then she asked um, if I could do the full report within 10 days. And then the third was that if I had any conflicts of interest with the Minnesota Police Department. And as soon as I heard that question, I was like, this is what's going on. And so I realized it was George Floyd. And you know, already there was a lot of unrest around George Floyd, and uh, so I was intrigued. I sort of wanted to know what happened with that case, and I'd seen things on the news, and plus I like challenges, and you know, I, so I said, sure. Now they had to interview me. They had a big, big high-priced law firm, and I sat for an interview, I think maybe the next day on a Sunday, 
and I think they liked my background and my answers, and so I got hired. And you know, for the next ten days, I, I, I it was spent reading about a lot of things, uh, the hundred-year history of the Minnesota the Police Department. I had to learn about. Uh, how to restrain suspects, different methods, and I had to learn particularly about what's called prone restraint when you put a suspect down on the ground and, and how that's a never event in policing and properly trained police officers would never do that. And then came reviewing the facts of the case, which was largely video evidence um, with some audio and I had to watch it over and over and over again. And then there was medical records, there was autopsy. Um, and th let me just say one thing, Jan, because I've talked about my involvement with George Floyd before, and I almost feel like I have to put a disclaimer, because it is a, such a contentious and volatile case. Um, I get suddenly attacked and accused of all sorts of things, and it's very strange. And here's what I want to say about the case is, I get that it's very controversial. I get that people have strong opinions, but I was really interested in bringing all of my professional and medical knowledge to bear in trying to produce as accurate an interpretation of what happened. And, um, you know, I've never known a saint. Um, I know a couple people who come close, um, but I've never met Mr. Mr. Floyd. Um, I was not a judge on the case, a lawyer, a prosecutor, or a jury. You know, I was a medical expert. And I did my job. Um, and I'll just tell you briefly uh, what I concluded, is based on a review of all of the evidence available to me, couple of things, because I think there are some misunderstandings of his case. So number one, I could find really no rational reason to argue that he died of a drug overdose. People will point to the drug levels of uh, the fentanyl and a couple other substances he had in his blood that were actually quite high. But what people don't recognize is those levels are not predictive in a chronic drug user. So that's number one. Number two, drug overdoses occur within seconds to minutes of administration. Um, if you smoke it, inject it, it's rather quite quick, the absorption, and it's always preceded by unconsciousness. You don't stop breathing uh, just suddenly. It's first you lapse into unconscious, and then the breathing slows and stops. He had used drugs before his apprehension, but the, the prolonged arrest before he was put into prone restraint is an inordinate amount of time. First, they put him into a police car. He is claustrophobic. He tried to get out. Then they moved him. They put him on the sidewalk. He was upright and talking. I mean, even if he was impaired, you cannot argue that the drugs were the cause of his arrest based on everything that happened. And then there's the temporal association. And the other uh, common misunderstanding of that case is my professional opinion was that it was not just Officer Chauvin knee on the neck. It, clearly, I don't think that was enough because a couple of reasons. He could phonate and make sounds, so his trachea was not completely occluded. It was really, it was the cumulative pressure of three officers, because if you look at some of the videos, it's actually four. So he was placed prone, which is a never event, because exactly of this, suspects have died in prone restraint, but it was quadruply worse because he had pressure on his neck, he had officer had two knees on his back and another one on sort of his waist area and then a fourth officer restraining his legs. He had zero ability to relieve the restriction on his thorax of breathing, which is probably one of the most distressing symptoms to ever feel. And even in my report, I gave an example of that. 
if you can recall as a child roughhousing with a bunch of children, if you've ever found yourself on a, under a pile, right, where suddenly, as soon as you sense you can't get enough air in, you start to scream, get off of me, get off of me. It's a very distressing symptom. I've been there. We've all yeah. been, right? I remember as a child, like, really getting scared because there's three kids on top of you and you can't breathe. Similarly, like, you ever get someone who gives you an over-exuberant bear hug, right? As soon as that hug comes in and you suddenly can't breathe, it's instant. And it was clear to me that that was what happened, Mr. Floyd. He was in extreme distress. He was asking for his mommy. He was saying repeatedly he couldn't breathe. And it's because he knew he was not taking enough air in to survive. And the prolonged minutes of that cumulative combined pressure eventually led to what's called excess carbon dioxide in the blood. Um, and that's really what he died of. And when you, the carbon dioxide goes high enough, it's called CO2 narcosis. That's when he became unconscious. Uh, and then eventually his heart stopped. And um, I will tell you, it was a pretty traumatizing case to have to watch over and over again. And the thing that I will never forget, I will never forget, is that there was a bystander who apparently had gotten some training. He kept yelling at the officers, what you're doing is you're not supposed to do that. Get off of him, because he knew somehow that that prone restraint that they were doing was highly dangerous. People were yelling, check his pulse. People were yelling, he's dead. And they never moved and never checked the pulse. And as a physician who does CPR, that's one of my expertises, it was really, really hard to watch that. I watched a man essentially suffocate through a combined weight of officers who either were poorly trained or uncallous. And the last thing I want to say, Jan, is I was the expert witness on the civil case, which led to a judgment for the family, a monetary compensation judgment. The criminal case I had nothing to do with. Um, it was judged that it was a homicide in the criminal case, and that was by a jury of peers. Okay, so it's not my opinion. I just gave a medical opinion as to what was the proximate cause of death. And I didn't do it for the family to win money. I did it because I was asked, and I thought it was important that I bring an objective and expert uh, insight into the case. And um, it was a very emotional time for me, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And, um, and then to hear, like, I can't even really talk about it without people getting really, really upset how I could have done an expert witness for a man who was so, you know, the things that they say about him. And then also the other controversy, right, is the national unrest that was occurring. People in the streets and all of the two sides of the political aisle and everyone saw it as black and white from two different sides. And it's, I didn't think, I didn't know if I was inserting myself into that, but uh, still to this day, it's not an easy topic to talk about because there's so many emotions and history involved in that case. Well. Neil, thank you for sharing it with me, and I, I believe that you offered your absolute best expert opinion from everything I know I've come to know about you. So it's interesting that this happened early in COVID. Um, you have this book coming out, The War on Ivermectin, and in the book you talk about the old you and the new you, and this is kind of still part of a lot of the old you, I guess. Oh, yeah. Right. At that time, yeah, I was still the old me. I, was, I, I would say most of what I've learned and how my life's been transformed, very little had occurred by that point. A lot was to come. So, you know, of course, you know, to get the details, you'll have to read, but, but what, tell me about that transformation. 
At the time that COVID started, I, I was a regular New York Times reader, and I believed it to be the paper of record and to be a symbol of the top journalism anywhere. If you really wanted to know what's going on, you read the New York Times. I felt similarly about medical journals, in particular the high-impact medical journals like New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. I thought the best scientists in science was published there. Um, I believed that the health agencies had a primary focus on protecting the public health of our population and were the most expert at doing that. Um, and I believe very strongly in those things. Um, I was also a believer in the concept of good government. I was a lefty, a liberal. Um, one thing that hasn't changed is I was distrustful of big pharma. Was taught to be that as a lefty and a liberal. Like corporations were not cool, you know, to some degree. Um, but I really, I really thought government could fix things, and that government would probably be the best person to provide the solution. I just thought it was supposed to be there to level the playing field. Okay, and I had that general political orientation. Now, obviously, politics is more complex than that, but that's where I started. Where I am now, Jan, is. Um, I've been subjected to immense amounts of propaganda and censorship for three years in almost every august media outlet of journalism. Um, and the reason why I got transferred is I became ex expert on a few very important things around the science of COVID. I became deeply knowledgeable. And once you become expert and you know generally what the scientific truth of something is, that's how I got, everything got exposed to me. I saw lies and misrepresentations and censorship. I saw things that I thought was really important for the public to know that was actively being censored, repeatedly and widely. And so my, my exposure to the control of the media, most of mass media, um, has been really disorienting and frightening. To think that I've been relying on them as a source of what I thought was the most accurate information for most of my life. I've been a New York Times reader since I was a child, and to find out that they were capable of being complicit in mass propaganda and censorship, it's not just the New York Times. I mean, it, it goes across the mediascape. And so that's where I've come to today. I'm, I'm, I know how to spot narratives. I, at least I think I do. I'm sure we're all still at risk at falling for narratives, but I have a sense of what propaganda is, how it's deployed. Um, I've learned to be much, much more skeptical, if, if not ignoring of what media says. I have to do my own deep dives and do my own research. I'm not going to believe anything just because it's printed in some newspaper. So that's just the media. The journals, you'll have to read my book, because what I learned about high-impact medical journals was not new. It was new to me. It's not been new in science. I mean, former editors of those high-impact journals, for instance, Marsha Angel, resigned in 2001 and wrote a book about her experiences as the editor of the top medical journal in the world. She called this. She said, you cannot believe half of what is published in these journals because it's manipulated and censored. And, and I always knew pharma was bad. I didn't understand that they're literally a criminal syndicate who have been you know, committing crimes for decades, and they pay fines and move on and continue their standard operating business. So we talked about the media, the agencies. And then when you come to government, I, didn't, I don't think I was aware how 
how literally how corporations have taken over almost all agencies of government. And to know that the response to COVID was literally controlled and conducted by the pharmaceutical industry with probably other bigger powers behind them. I think they were the ones that they used to do this, but the control of the pharmaceutical industry, I, I had to see three years of policies, every policy emitting from those agencies. All you had to ask yourself is, what would a pharmaceutical company want? And voila, there was your policy. Every single policy was in line in serving the interest of a pharmaceutical company. And guess what that brought us? Multiple humanitarian catastrophes millions of lives from the suppression of early treatment, millions of uh, people dead around the world from the vaccines, and now epidemics of vaccine injury and long COVID with very little treatments, right? That's why we're here, we're at a conference. And um, so to say I've been transformed is an understatement. Um, it's, it's been, um, you know, the, the, the adage that a lot of folks that I know, it's, they talk about going from blue pill to red pill. And although it's been very, disturbing the journey, what I've had to learn and what I've had to see. It's been quite frightening and even dystopian. I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's number one. Um, number two, some of the beauty has been in connecting with people who didn't fall for those lies and could spot the propaganda and taught me things and made me understand things that maybe I didn't want to understand, but, but I've come to understand now. And I now have a huge network of colleagues that I, I trust. I trust their counsel, their insight, their objectivity. Um, and their really right-sized desire to really make things right and, and really put out information. I mean, ultimately, Jan, it was a war of information. I think all of the destruction was about information and how it was controlled. And, you know, to, you know, I was already transformed before the Twitter files. And the Twitter files is just absolutely astonishing. Every agency of government, intelligence agencies, health agencies, literally controlling Twitter and what was showing up on Twitter. And that was happening in the media. You heard about the billion dollars our government, it's not our government, right? Those are corporations that are running our government. So the corporations are sending money to media agencies to promote a vaccine campaign and to censor anything that would elevate vaccine hesitancy. It's almost like you're watching a military operation and they're using all of the institutions of society. And if I sound crazy, um, that's just how I've interpreted these three years. And there's no other way to explain it. If you look at the history of propaganda and censorship, we, we usually relate it to certain countries and certain peers, right? Uh, North Korea, Germany, USSR. But suddenly, for the first time in history, we had technology and we had consolidation of power on a global level. You had these industries that have global reach and technology to censor and propaganda. And so I saw a global propaganda and censorship campaign which made the world go mad. The things that I saw them do in this blanket of propaganda and censorship, you know, mandating young children who had basically zero risk of anything serious happening to them from COVID, you mandated these vaccines and people lost their jobs and they were victimized and vilified, you know, for being unvaccinated. And then, and then those adjacent to them, if you were anywhere near an unvaccinated, you still got attacked. And the most absurd were the people who got vaccinated and then injured, and the, the, probably one of the most telling cases was the mountain biker who got vaccine injured and he recorded a video of what he was going through and he was so sincere and he was tearful because his career was decimated. And then he started to cry because of all of the attacks on him 
for being an anti-vaxxer. This young professional athlete just trying to share what happened to him and just masses of attacks as an, as an anti-vaxxer. I mean, I, I never saw anything so absurd. And, and so people were whipped up into this. And, and you know, again, this was also a blanket of fear. The other, other ingredient that you saw was this, this fear-mongering ever. And I, by the way, I was scared. I saw stuff that made COVID really, really scary, but it actually, when you let the dust settle and see everything, it wasn't as scary as first advertised to be. But the fear and dangers of COVID were constantly propagated as fearful, far beyond when we started to discover that really you only had to worry about it in certain you know, strata, um, you really only had to worry about it in people who were untreated, <laughs> you know, like if you treated it early, it was nothing, it was nothing. I mean, you, you, Jan, you've interviewed so many people who've treated thousands and thousands, and no matter how many times us doctors in this movement would say we've treated 2,000, 3,000, 10,000, no one's going to the hospital. What happens? Disin that's misinformation, right? We got accused of being misinformationist. And so it was this war where the, 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 the voices of truth and sanity were, were getting drowned out by, uh, I would say, lies that were told for different objectives. And to learn, like, the CEO of Moderna is now a, has $4 billion of wealth, right? The pharmaceutical companies made tens to hundreds of billions. And, um, and the massive transfer of wealth. I mean, it, it's been a really difficult three years, but I still see most of the population who I don't think, I don't, wouldn't say they haven't paid attention, but they just think it was a rough time and we're just gonna move on now. That's not what my, my experience was. And then, the, you know, the last thing is um, reading the books by, and articles by former high-level academics, editors of journals, and seeing what the journals did. The high-impact medical journals played a massive role in, in the human toll of COVID uh, by censoring positive studies of repurposed drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, publishing clearly fraudulent trials that were designed to fail to show that ivermectin didn't work, to show that hydroxychloroquine didn't work, manipulated trials showing safety and efficacy of the vaccines. And so I saw this corrupted science being held as the truth and being arrogantly determined by all doctors, because here's where I think the doctors messed up. They, are too, they, were too, they were like me in the beginning. They're too trusting in the institutions of science, the agencies and the journals. And they put an immense amount of trust. They didn't understand why there were so many of the population who were questioning what they were saying. Like, yeah, we see your journals. We see that they're safe and effective, but that's not been our experience down here on the ground, and you had this discord between the top scientists and what they were saying, they would say it so arrogantly and smugly and definitively, and then what they would say would change a few days later, right? Remember the 95% effective, 70, 50, 30? Okay, it doesn't work for transmission, but it's still protects against hospitalization and death. So you had these, the reality was there was nothing was ever true, and they were just shifting their stories. and. So where it's left me is I can't really read high-impact medical journals now. When I read a study, the first thing I read now is I go to the conflicts of interest, and that's all you have to read. Once you read a study and you see that they have numerous conflicts of interest with the actual molecule or compound or medicine that's being studied, you cannot trust that paper. 
It may be true, it may not be true, but I refuse to act on a paper whose conclusions were reached by investigators who have direct conflicts of interest with their findings. There's no more objectivity. And I've seen too many lies being published. I've seen things that are determined not to work and things to work, and both were lies. And every time the investigators were reeking, drowning in conflicts of interest. My, the, the most troubling one is Active Six, the National Institutes of Health. They finally get around to, to doing a large randomized control trial in ivermectin. You know who they chose as the principal investigator? A woman from Duke who they gave a $140 million grant to who has stock in a competitor to ivermectin. She has conflicts of interest with Gilead, who manufactures remdesivir. I mean, she's got like a rap sheet long of pharmaceutical industry influences, as does almost every other investigator on that trial. And what are they studying? They're studying a drug that would decimate the markets of every single one of those pharmaceutical companies in COVID. Can anyone actually believe they're going to lead to anything but a predetermined result? And by the way, the disinformation, disinformation is actually um, defined in an article that I always cite by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And it's the tactics used by industry when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. Disinformation was actually invented in the 1950s by the tobacco industry who hired a PR firm. And they started pulling these five tactics. And the biggest and most effective tactics is what's called the fake. And the fake has three different ways it's run. It's conducting and designing trials with predetermined results, censoring positive reports of, for instance, your competitor, and then uh, promoting like negative editorials and selectively publishing only negative studies. And I detail all of how they did this. I have huge collections of rejection letters from these journals to investigators that had done good trials, randomized controlled trials, showing phenomenal benefits of ivermectin, and the rejection letters were all the same. I'm sorry, this topic is of not of sufficient interest to our readers at this time. And when you lead, you either want to laugh at that or cry, because in the middle of a global pandemic, people dying across the world, a positive trial of ivermectin is of not sufficient interest to their readership. This is how it's done. And, you know, you know, when I decided to write this book, I was angry. I said, I am documenting what these criminals are doing, how they're corrupting the science around a life-saving drug. And I started to document everything. And it's only after I read the Disinformation Playbook, which I read it in March of 2021. Um, you know, I gave testimony in, in December of 2020. Everything was going sideways. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand why people weren't just looking at my paper. Immense amount of evidence showing it worked. Yet there was nothing but attacks on ivermectin. I couldn't figure out why our advice wasn't being like openly embraced. And one day I got a, an email from um, a professor, William B. Grant, who's one of the world experts at vitamin D. It was a two-line email, didn't know who he was. Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included the link. And it was only when I read that article that the world made sense. I mean, I read the article, it's a short article, it's a very powerful article. And, and they, they outlined each tactic and I was like, wait, I've seen that, I've seen that, they did that yesterday, they did that to me two days ago, this is what they're doing to the FLCCC. And like literally outlined 
it was, it was almost like getting the teacher's edition to the world. I was like, suddenly it was like a click went off. I'm like, that's what's happening. Myself and the FLCCC has launched ourselves into the middle of a decades-long war on repurposed drugs. This is not about ivermectin. It's not about hydroxychloroquine, although my book is kind of a case study around ivermectin, because it's a really good case study. It's been going on for a long time. And then another example is the NFL with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right? The researcher who first tried to publish his results that the football players, you know, were developing these micro hemorrhages and suffering all these illnesses. You know what happened to him? Oh boy, did the NFL go after him, right? They made a movie about it. And that, that's just one tactic, it's called the blitz. You go after the researchers who produce inconvenient results. Ergo, I lost three jobs and, you know, uh, I've been attacked widely in the media, but well, it's and, what and they do. And found a new one. And found a new one, that's the thing, I'm happy now. That's what I said, the, the transition was rough, especially when I didn't know what was going on. Once I knew what I was going on, I fought as valiant as I could in that war. Um, ultimately, I'm unemployed by, by the system, but I love my nonprofit. I love my private fee-based practice where no one can touch me. I actually, uh, I actually practice under the jurisdiction of the Crow Indian tribe now. Um, so the states don't have any jurisdiction over me. All of my patients become tribal uh, members. And uh, once I'm a certified tribal practitioner, and once I, I, as long as I'm treating a tribal patient, the states have no jurisdiction. So I'm, I found that parallel system of where I think I'm safe for now. Um, and I'm helping a lot of people, and I'm very happy with what I do. That's a fascinating uh, solution, let's it just is. say. <laughs> yeah. You, you made a friend. Uh, Definitely. So you mentioned this one aha moment where you read this article, which I'll, uh, we'll, we'll include a link to in, the, in, our, in our piece here. Wait, can I interrupt you for yeah. a second? I'm very curious as to whether you're going to be allowed to include that link in your piece. And I'll tell you why. Just finished the book in a two-week marathon over the last two, two weeks with my co-writer. And in my book, I had numerous references to that article, um, including an image of the cover of the title of the article and where you could find it. I literally cited the names of each play and used their definitions. And one of the last little checklists on writing our book was asking permission of the Union for Concerned Scientists to cite their article. And the first response from this organization was, I don't think it'll be a problem, let me just check. A day later, we got a very stern email. You do not have permission to use any material from that article. Can I ask you a question? What do you think happened? They were like, sure, you could use our article. And suddenly, and we actually found out later, I, my co-writer had a conversation with the woman who was, because my co-writer was like, this sounds like the union for unconcerned scientists, because it's like, why are you doing this? And it was because of the controversy around me. And it's so odd, because they wrote an article about disinformation. I'm literally the target of that disinformation, and I've suffered a lot from it. And so I wanted to use their article to show what they did to me, yet they're believing that stuff. They said, oh, he's controversial. We saw that he tried to publish a paper without listing his conflict, because there was a little episode where we published a paper and I got attacked because I didn't include the fact that I use ivermectin in my private practice and that I'm part of the FLCCC, which is a nonprofit. 
I've never heard of that as a conflict of interest in a paper. So like, literally, they made up the fact that I'm trying to hide my conflicts. Those aren't conflicts. Working for a nonprofit organization is not a conflict of interest, nor is using a medicine in your practice. I don't make money off of ivermectin, but the people at the Union for Concerned Scientists apparently thought I was some sort of controversial or bad, and they just did not want me to cite their work in the book. So we had to like vaguely reference it in the book. So I actually was pretty upset about this. I was like, I can't believe it. Well, it's, uh, it's, it sounds to me, this was a key moment for you. Yeah. Profoundly inspiring, profoundly changing, profound understanding, and you're very ironically not allowed to reference it directly it, it's fascinating it's fascinating fascinating and and then the other thing is i've gotten a nobel grant the professor sent me the link he and i now are, are good pen pals and he sends me articles all the time and you know what i've learned is uh what he said was also equally interesting which is that they've been doing this to vitamin d for decades and when you do what's called meta-analyses of vitamin d for any condition whether it be cancer or infectious illness or anything autoimmunity the literature is so polluted with trials designed to fail, giving too low a dose at a late of a time, wrong formulation of vitamin D, and you have tons of negative trials that have been published over decades. Those trials, they knew what they were doing. They don't want you to believe that vitamin D is, 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 is protective to your health. And so the entire system, no doctors tell people to take vitamin D. Sometimes they'll check it if the level's low and, they, and also how they set the levels artificially, uh, you know, too low. Like they say 30 micrograms or nanograms per deciliter is normal. Not true. People would do much better with higher, higher levels. And so vitamin D has is, is been a long-standing uh, object of a war from the pharmaceutical industry. That's why I said the war on ivermectin is not, it's not about ivermectin. They've been doing it on numerous repurposed drugs. So let's, let's be clear, a repurposed drug is one that's generally off patent. It does not hold out profits. And so they want to bury the older drugs to make you always want to take the newer patented profitable one. And they'll, they'll take any lengths to do that. We reached out to the Union of Concerned Scientists for comment, but did not immediately receive a response. It seems like the deployment of the COVID genetic vaccines was happened at a scale that no other deployment of any medication, probably even close, mm -hmm. right? And I and I just I find myself wondering if it isn't just simply the raw scale of it that has revealed so much that was hidden in you know, perhaps other similar contexts in the past. I don't know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's a brilliant point you just made. The scale helped expose it, but also the fact that it failed and you could see that it failed from early on and how much they had to do to hide that. If it, if it had been a success, Jan, you would agree, I don't think it would have exposed anything. In fact, it would have entrenched it even more see how well our system is working. It produced a vaccine in record time and it's obliterated case rates across. So if it had been a success, I don't think it would expose anything, right? I think that it was really what exposed it is how many 
deeply researched lay people, doctors, and when I say many, a tiny minority, but in every country around the world, were aghast at what we were seeing. When you started to look at the data from a totality of sources, I mean, the, the signals were absolutely alarming. And yet, that's, you never heard that in the media, and you never heard it in the journals. And so that was what exposed is that you saw a failed medical experiment being covered up on a global scale. And it was the cover-up which really, right, don't they say like, uh, isn't that some adage like it's, it's not the crime that gets you in trouble, it's the cover-up, right? And so for, for me, it was, it was the fact that they had to cover up a, a global catastrophe and there's no way to do that. And I think the truth is starting to come out now. You're starting to see more and more sort of investigations, and I wouldn't call them tribunals, but some of the state legislators are starting to look harder. And even in Fauci's is his never-ending victory tour in the past week, he's had a rough go of it, actually. By the way, I just published an op-ed that'll be on foxnews.com where I detail how things aren't going so well for Fauci. He's starting to see questions from formerly friendly news outlets that are a little challenging for him, and he's getting very defensive. So I think things are changing, but it, it, was, it was the cover-up of a failed medical experiment. But I like your point. We've never seen anything like that. I mean, the scope and scale of what they try to do, vaccinate the entire world, like overnight? The entire world? There's different theories about how and why all this happened, and you're pretty strong on this sort of corporatism, corporate kind of takeover of government being this sort of central driver. But, I mean, so one of the theories is just, this is just raw incompetence on a mass scale, right? And, but you don't think that. So here's, here's where, huh, so now we're getting into some complicated stuff. So I would say the pharmaceutical industry and its tactics were the final driver. That was actually the instrument they used. Who's behind pharma? Well, it's actually, this wasn't pharma, right? So pharma was working for the military. To build, to make these vaccines, the contracts were all from the Department of Defense. So that was a Department of Defense contract. Department of Defense did not do due diligence in ensuring safety. The manufacturing of these products violated every uh, what's called CG, uh, GMP standard, right? Good manufacturing practice standard. And experts like Sasha Latipova, right, who's an expert at good manufacturing practice, there's never been a product, even a baby seat, a, you know, a car seat, a, a car, um, a, a can of, uh, you know, uh, peaches. Nothing had the level of adverse events reported, including deaths, and the variation between lots. I mean, it was a manufacturing catastrophe. And if, if the pharmaceutical industry was working correctly, those things would have been stopped and taken off the market immediately. But it was just an unrelenting push through media, even the government, the De Department of Defense. I mean, I, I don't know who, I, I don't understand what this was. I don't know if it, it was a, a, it definitely came out of a lab. I mean, that's already settled science. But was it leaked or was it an accident? Um, and you could say, let's say it was an accident and our government's been preparing for this massive countermeasure, right? And it was really the military that was employing a military countermeasure. And I actually think that makes some sense because when you see all of the ethics, medical ethics that were violated, that's telling you that's not the healthcare. I, I, you, I think we still have a sense of ethics that they forgot it overnight, but I look at it almost like it sounded like a military exercise where like you gotta sacrifice 100 people to take that hill. 
right? And like th there was the, the, the way VARES exploded and the deaths, the amount of deaths that were reported within the first weeks and nobody looked at it. It was nothing but attacking VARES as a source of data, nothing to see here. It, it sounded to me like the military, like just seeing battlefields strewn with, with, with soldiers and just moving ahead, you gotta get your objective. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so like, I do, I do think that the corporations benefited and profited greatly, but the conduct was like nothing we've ever seen before. When, when you think about like the case of Vioxx, right, compared to the vaccine. So Vioxx, certainly they suppressed the adverse event data. Up to about between 50 and 60,000 people in the United States died um, during the time that they knew that Vioxx was causing deaths. But eventually that case was brought to court. They paid the biggest fine ever, I think, at that time. And so there was a little bit of a check and a balance to the pharmaceutical industry, whereas here it seemed the guardrails were removed and there was nothing, no data that come out that was gonna stop this train. And so I, it, that's why I think it's somewhat even bigger than the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I think the government was complicit, the military was complicit. Whoever was, who was manning this operation basically was, was giving out orders to ignore all warnings and move on ahead this unrelenting vaccine media campaign, um, which whipped up people into, you know, craziness. It was almost like, you know, you've heard all the stories where they, the unvaccinated were not invited to Thanksgiving. I know so many of my friends and colleagues who, they were crying. Their daughters, you know, mothers of daughters who didn't want their grandmothers to come to the house, you know? And, and I mean, how much uh, discord and enmity in society that it sowed, I mean, it, it it was carnage. It was carnage. And um, that's just not like a, a dangerous pharmaceutical product. It's a little bit bigger than that, right? So, so I, I want to say that like for a long time, I put everything as the feet of, this is just pharma doing their thing to make money. Um, but I do get a sense that it's much bigger than that. But pharma is the best industry on earth at doing disinformation. They have been doing it the longest. Um, well, I'm not, well, if you could, yeah, I wouldn't count tobacco as the pharmaceutical industry, but they're close. Uh, <laughs> but they're absolutely expert. And, and with modern consolidated media control and technology, um, it's, it's immense what they can do. And what's interesting is that there was, there, you know, when you think of technology, actually, there was an enemy to their control is that social media, right? Social media is the Wild West, right? And look at what they did to control social media, right? That's what the Twitter files, right? They, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Because if you don't try to control and censor um, in social media, the truth will spread like wildfire. And so I actually think those social media companies were the enemy to their objectives, right? And, and the Twitter files shows you the extent to which they did that. They used the central clearinghouse at Stanford where every agency, that, where that hub linked every governmental agency, intelligence agency with every social media company. And, and Stanford was just monitoring, algorithmic monitoring all these communications and trying to snuff out information that would be inconvenient to their goals. And it's, I think it looked like a military operation to me. To your point about it being something bigger, you know, a number of guests on this show have convincingly showed that this the, the apparatus of censorship and manufacturing perceived consensus, which is how I like to call it, you know, actually pivoted from 
doing this around election issues into doing it around COVID issues. So this thing it was already developed. Correct. And it wasn't just it. You know, it's let, let's call, it's all sorts of different elements of society, government, nonprofit, corporate. And, and so forth. It's a and that's the history of the Trusted News Initiative, right? Which was really first convened around controlling information around elections, right? Um, and I find it absurd on its face. You literally have the top journalism organizations in the world who get together and decide they have to control the flow of information. You know, like I thought freedom of the press and speech was like central to this. It's almost like a doctor saying, yeah, I don't think the patient is my primary consideration anymore, right? I mean, the freedom of the press is suddenly not sacrosanct. And so you saw that, and then they pitted, uh, pitted, pivoted to COVID, to COVID. But there's a difference, though. Manipulating elections, information around elections, I think causes great harm. It does not lead directly to death. Whereas here you're talking about censorship and propaganda around something that was causing immense amount of death, either through the suppression of treatments or the propagation of a toxic uh, intervention. And so it, the harms seem just catastrophically different scales. Um, but, but you're right, it, both are wrong. <laughs> at, at, at the very least, it's a lesson that, you know, you, if you create a monster for maybe even the best intentions, it's still a monster. Yes. I, I, agree completely with what you just said. So here's the challenge. And you talked a little bit about this in your speech earlier. The challenge is there's ostensibly a whole lot of money out there in theory to study vaccine injury, to study the whole realm, the field as it exists right now. It's not really being used. And you know, you end up having, you know, smaller organizations don't have huge access to funding to be to be to be trying to figure things out and these large-scale RCT trials which are very expensive aren't aren't really happening because well how, how would you, how would that happen so so what is the path forward in trying to understand really understand what's going on because in many cases we still don't know Jan I I don't I don't want to answer by saying I hate that question but I find it the most difficult to answer I I wish I knew I, I mean you know, I think of more in terms of big concepts, like, is this about tearing down and rebuilding the system? I don't know that that's a viable path, you know. Is it about building a parallel system, a new, that people will flock to, <laughs> you know, as they see that the present system that they're in has failed them and has been corrupted and controlled by industry? and. Um, I think people need truth and good information and good guidance and they're gonna go where that's provided. But first they have to understand where bad information is coming from. And you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't have answers to the world. I just know what's worked in this journey. And I think our organization has done really good work. And I think if we get more organizations and people and as we continue our work, I think um, the impacts that we've shown, we're, I think we've—I think our work has saved a considerable amount of lives. Something you said really struck me earlier: old gumshoe medicine being a factor. Yeah. So maybe let's finish with that. Yeah. And it's funny because even though I was a believer in evidence-based medicine and randomized controlled trials and picking apart studies, 
I also knew that I knew things that didn't come out of studies. It came out of clinical experience, observations, trying different approaches, and you could see things that worked. I mean, people like to believe that anecdotal evidence doesn't work. Like if a doctor sees, gives someone a medicine or a treatment and sees them approve in a way that's palpably different than they've seen other patients behave, that's not to be trusted. That's not real unless tested in a large, multi-center, double-blind, randomized control trial. That's absurd. We have hundreds of years of medicine where doctors discovered insight. Now, were they always right on everything? No. But are we right now with these randomized control trials? Absolutely not. That system has been corrupted. But old gumshoe medicine is just learn, you know, leaning on the powers of observation clinical reasoning, understanding of mechanisms, understanding of the mechanisms of, of action of interventions, and then using risk-benefit analysis and trying things until you figure out how to get patients better. Always trying not to harm the patient, but also untreated disease is harmful, right? So doing nothing is not really ethical. When someone's, you know, deteriorating, and, and, and that's why that whole go home and wait till your lips turn blue is so absurd. There's no disease that you can't try to treat you know, using, you know, a sensible, prudent approach. And so that's where we are with long COVID and vaccine injury. The, the research funding of the government, that 1.2 billion that I cited, they haven't enrolled one patient in a trial yet. Um, we got to rely on the older methods that we have as doctors. And then the other thing that we do is collaborate. You know, my, myself and my partner, we're always sharing clinical experience and when we found something works or a new strategy. I talk to doctors who've been dealing with chronic illness for decades. I learn new, you know, tactics from them. And I gotta tell you, it's really fun. <laughs> we don't have to deal with these, you know, uh, you know, trials that we have to be skeptical of. And, and that's the other thing. You know, I didn't mention that this morning, but the 1.2 billion that they funded in these trials that they're supposedly doing for long COVID, do you know what the first one that they decided to do? It's the only trial, it's on Paxlovid. Paxlovid. You know, the results you get are from the way the system is designed. Of course they would choose Paxlovid as the first thing, and it makes no scientific sense. I have no idea why they, they would think Paxlovid would work in long COVID. And I guess there's a couple of rationales. I don't think they're correct, but, but that's a pricey, patented pharmaceutical drug with more drug, drug interactions than I've ever seen. And these patients are chronically ill. I could, how long can you give Paxlovid for? I mean, long COVID is a chronic illness and they want to test Paxlovid, which is, you know, a short course and ah, don't get me started. Um, but, but basically be, because of the way the system has failed and been captured, um, we have to rely on, on older time-tested methods and, and um, like I said, good reasoning, collaboration, and, and we're figuring this out. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I've been in practice for 15 months. I am getting, with each month that goes by, I get better and better at what I do. Well, Dr. Pierre Corey, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you. Great, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Pierre Corey and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik.